0: Welcome to a new edition of Raiders of the Unknown. Uh, We are part of the Mystic Skeptic um, series of programs. And in today's episode, uh, we're going back to our series called Jesus Wars. And we're reviewing the book, uh, The Passover Plot by Hughes Schoenfeld. This is my worn out version of it. Um, It's amazing what uh, is available in old bookstores and from... um, research done back in the 60s you would think that the older it is the less accurate and the, and the less information you can ascertain from it but it's actually full of interesting data that is not usually brought up by modern scholars in an ongoing war with myth vision the the group that we uh, responded to uh, last time we are going to be bringing up some issues that they were incapable of describing because they're they have a bias that um, doesn't really address the major issues that uh, are discussed in this book. And uh, we'll get to it in a minute. Um, We have our co-host, Tony, who's going to be bouncing back ideas with me. But um, just so you guys know, the background of Hugh Schoenfeld uh, is interesting because he's a a beloved scholar in secular circles and a hated scholar among uh, Christians and Messianic Jews and Hebrew roots and all those guys because he doesn't say what they want them to say. Uh, he's actually someone for, with a Jewish ancestry uh, from England, but he was raised uh, a Christian. So he made it his life's effort to write several books on the early Jesus movement. And he has some things that people consider conspiracies, but in reality, they are uh, alternative versions of what could have happened. And some of the stuff is pretty insightful uh, in my perspective. Again, the book is called The Passover Plot and. When you name a book like that, it it creates all these um, conspiracy um, perspectives. You know, why would someone say that there was a plot during the Passover? And that's pretty much the premise of the book that he uh, believes that Jesus orchestrated his own death to uh, fill fulfill um, this messianic expectation that he had for himself. Uh, what is interesting is that he doesn't portray Jesus as a, a scammer or Someone who's doing it insincerely, he, he sees him as someone who did it purposely, but in a way that it was in line with his own particular beliefs. Uh, the problem with that is that it's scary. Um, you know, someone like David Koresh, did he really believe he was the reincarnation of Jesus? There's actually the guy from mid has five different Jesuses um, that are roaming around right now. And, you know, there's one in England there's one in Australia. There's one, in, there's two in Africa. Um, and stuff like that. And if someone uh, feels that they've been, um, you know, re embodiment of Jesus or something like that, that is kind of strange. But at that time, there was a lot of stuff that was leading to the idea of a Messiah. And what's interesting is the more you study Judaism, the more you realize that the, the concept of Messiah wasn't even fully developed until the third or fourth century after Christ so say so how can that be how can uh there was a book written just about the concept of messiah which is the new testament and now you're telling me that the jewish um integration of that idea did not happen until way later well it's because it it was kind of like up for grabs like you can take any concept from the tanakh or the the jewish old testament and you can apply it to any group or any individual. So. What was floating around at that time was that there was some type of angel, some type of agent of vengeance, some type of um, prophetic characters that would come back. There was all kinds of ideas. They were nitpicked from the Hebrew scriptures, and they could be applied to different individuals. And that's what you see with the Dead Sea Scrolls is that they saw themselves as the, the elect, the group that was chosen by God to make true some of the things he had promised. And that's what they say. Uh, Hugh Schonfield was one of the early scholars of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And he applies some of these ideas to Jesus and to his brother James. But he doesn't go extreme like some of the other Jewish scholars where they say Jesus is the teacher of righteousness. And James is um, the prophet. And John the Baptist is the priest and stuff like that. There's some of that in um, James Tabor's book, uh, The Jesus Dynasty. He just throws it out as like, hey, these are some ideas that could have been incorporated or they were uh, working well with with that time period. And then the other concept that is important to be familiar with is that since there was so many different competing groups, they all lay claim to this millennial idea of being um, the one that God wanted to bring redemption or reformation to the current system. So again, as we discussed in in previous uh, shows, uh, the Roman occupation of of, uh, Judea at that time was traumatic. It was a time of turmoil and of fear of not being able to survive that type of uh, pressure and, um, you know, suppressing their, their system. But the Romans were no fools. They actually allowed some Judaism to take place so then they could benefit from it either through uh, taxes um some type of offerings that were given to them and to um to use that population for for their greater cause which was hegemony among the the their empire um so I was trying to find passages within uh the book that uh, kind of lay the foundation of what he's trying to say and there was other books written before uh the um, the passover plot that kind of brought up some of the similar concerns that um, he, Schoenfeld was discussing. And the reason I said that that he's hated by the, the new Jewish Christian movement is because he doesn't um, do this slam dunk mentality that they have, where it's like everything fits uh, neatly into their narrative. And again, if the concept of the Messiah wasn't fully uh, codified up until that point, What stops Jesus or his followers or any other messianic contender at that time to claim it for themselves? You know, now you have people bring up what Maimonides said in the 11th century or what some other rabbis said in the 15th, 16th century. But all that stuff was inconsequential at that time because there was no orthodoxy like a lot of people have been saying. There was many different groups and you can pick your favorite group. So if I were to pick my favorite group, I would call the Essenes or the Dead Sea sect the real Jews, because they were the most stringent and they were the ones who actually discussed the concept of the Messiah more than any other group. But they described it in a way that it wasn't um, salvific in the sense that Christians would see it. The Messiah was supposed to be an, an anointed uh, leader who brought about some type of uh, spiritual awakening. And then there was a couple other Messianic figures in the, mi- in the mix. Um, there was Melchizedek was seen as, as a powerful character. that was like a mystical character. Then you had different angels. that would come and, and help with the restoration of Israel. And then you had, um, the Messiah son of Aaron, uh, as well as the Messiah son of David. So, um, I think somebody was saying that Jesus, oh, our previous guest was saying that Jesus is the Messiah son of Joseph, but not the Messiah son of David and the Messiah son of David has to be the one who um, brings out the kingdom and this and that. But the one concept that both the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Jesus Movement had was this um, idea of the new and everlasting covenant. And you know, in the in the three synoptic gospels it says that Jesus establishes that when he says, you know, this is a cup of, of the new covenant. But the new covenant in the context of Jeremiah uh, 10 and 11 is that the Torah will no longer be like written. It would be, internalized. And then the emphasis from Paul versus the Essenes is different. Instead of saying this is a, a a law that would be different from the original one, there's a different emphasis where it says the law is the same, but it is in, an, in a renewed sense of purpose or something like that. And that's what the Essenes were saying. So if you go back to the early uh, description of Jesus, like the, the gospel of Mark, it's within that context. So like we discussed before, you know, when when Jesus asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He always points it back to the law of Mo- Moses. So then to, to bring that up and to say that now I will establish a covenant with Israel and Judah. He's talking within the context of Judaism and within the context of the Jewish community. Paul universalizes it and send it out to the world. But like we've discussed in previous shows, and I don't think this has brought up. Even the idea of the Messiah ben Joseph taking on the sins, it doesn't say that he takes on the sins of the world. It says he takes on the sins of Israel. Uh, Tony, uh, what do you think about these two ideas that the covenant, the new and everlasting covenant or the Brit Chadasha uh, or Brit HaOlam is being um, enacted within the circle of the Jews? And then it says in a future date. It doesn't say that it was you know, back then. And then this idea that if there is a messiah ben joseph which is a, also a later concept that this messiah ben joseph would take on the sins of israel and be uh an a, a atoning uh sacrifice on their behalf but it never mentions the world or the um, what the paul tries to make it as bringing the nations through that
1: yeah it's it's a it's a pretty fascinating concept um we see in, I think it's John chapter 11 or John chapter 10, Caiaphas, um, he he becomes under the influence of the Holy Spirit. He starts prophesying and he says something very peculiar. Um, He says that this man is to die, not for only for the sins of the nation, but also um, to gather the children of God back to God. Then Paul has some unique uh, wordage where he says that, uh, God was in the man Jesus to reconcile the world back to himself. Um, I think maybe it's got to do with um, the Greek, the the New Testament, the Brit being written in Greek. So it kind of throws uh, these terminologies and what's being said off. Um, I see a lot of people when they start dissecting these texts, they stick in the Greek. And I've always wondered, like, why wouldn't you correspond, do you use the corresponding terms in the Hebrew to be able to understand? Because this, this, like you said, it's in the context within Judaism. Um, so I've always wondered that because uh, through my research and my studying um, Orthodox uh, Judaism, I really don't hear too much about the New Covenant. Um, I hear about, you know, the takoon alam. um, I don't hear much being spoken about the new covenant, how it's going to come about. Um, you know, I've, I've heard some concepts about Moshiach, uh, when Moshiach comes, um, part of what he'll do is destroy the evil inclination or take away the evil inclination. Uh, that's kind of part of my, one of my personal views, as far as Moshiach, uh, part of what his, the restoration is, is, uh, that helping remove the, uh, the venom of the serpent, Uh, which i view as the evil inclination um also known as the yetzahara but as far as the context of um as the author is trying to make point out that it's all set up to place it upon yourself to i just as a human being myself that is a that's an extreme thing to do to go through torture and uh, that that type of painful death uh, because if it's a delusional mindset, what's the purpose? I mean, it's all for nothing. <laughs> it's like it doesn't make any sense. Um, and not just that, but you get into the pressure behind that, you start suffering. I mean, that type of pain and torture and rejection from your own people. I mean. Oh, that's a that's a that's a that's a star. that's a far stretch right there. I don't understand the basis behind that, but. um, Yeah, that's. That's a weird concept. I, I guess the, the burden of proof would be on the person who's making the accusation.
0: OK, so let's lay the foundation uh, of his premise. Um, I was mentioning the, the different messiahs mentioned in the Dead Sea. Uh, scrolls and um, one of the the books that comes up um, are the Testaments of the Patriarchs and there's different interpolations. They say that maybe it was a later edition or whatever, but the one that he quotes um, is uh, the Testament of Naphtali, Testament of Joseph, uh, and the Testimony testimony of Simeon. In uh, in one of them, it says the following: "And now, my children, obey Levi and Judah." And be not lifted up against the two tribes. For from them shall rise unto you the salvation of God. For the Lord shall raise up Levi as it were a high priest. And from Judah as it were a king. He shall save all the race of Israel. So that's the stuff that was floating around at the time of Jesus. That there was going to be two Mashiachs. And they would have different uh, responsibilities. Um, And then... The idea of preparing the way of the Lord, you know, they talk a lot about that in Matthew and Mark. That um, that John the Baptist was uh, someone like uh, Elijah. So this is the manual of discipline from Qumran. It says the following quote: "And when these things shall come to pass, the community of Israel, in the determined moments, they shall separate themselves from the midst of the habitation of perverse men to take to the to the wilderness to prepare the way of Him, as it was written." Prepare ye in the wilderness the way of the Lord. Make straight to the desert a highway for our God. Isaiah, um, I think that's 50 uh, verse 3. So they saw the way of God as the study of Torah uh, because it's within the manual of discipline, which describes what the Essenes would uh, be like. But it's interesting, and later maybe we can discuss it, he believes John uh, Hugh Schoenfield believes that Joseph Aramatea was actually Josephus, and for those that are not familiar with Josephus, he's the the historian that wrote uh, Antiquities, and he was the one who was a sergeant of the of the troops against the Romans, and then he turned and he became uh, a follower of Caesar or like a member of the of the council in Rome. So uh, somehow. Schoenfeld claims that he was there at the time of the crucifixion and that he was the one that helped Jesus with the tomb and stuff like that. Uh, And then he uses an example of that. So I find that interesting. But according to Josephus, his interpretation of the passage in Isaiah is that so as to act according to all that was revealed time after time and according to what the prophets revealed by his Holy Spirit. So that's how he interprets prepare ye in the wilderness the way of the Lord makes straight the desert, a highway for our God. So all Jews at that time, I guess I'll give you two examples, but come on. Uh, they believed that the way of, of the Lord was the Torah and, and Derech the, Hashem, which now in, in religious circles in Judaism, it's living a, a, a pious life, faithful to Torah. So if, If it's true, the account of John the Baptist by Josephus, which says that he was a righteous man, that he was bringing people to repentance, and then it correlates with the New Testament. So we had a guy who had some type of uh, special calling, and he was similar to the Essenes. He lived in the desert. He used water as a cleansing agent, just like the Essenes in Qumran. And he was asking people to join his movement to get back to the ways of God. So... If Jesus was his disciple, which a lot of scholars would say that he built um, a community around the teachings of of John the Baptist, and then he even would not start his ministry until he got the blessing from John the Baptist. Have you ever considered that? That it's interesting that uh, Jesus was being held back until John gave him the the anointing or the cleansing before starting his uh, travails?
1: Absolutely. I I uh when I went to Bible school, I had questions like this. I was just I would question things like um because it was you know it was modern Christianity. I think it was like non-denomination, maybe word of faith. Some I, I don't even remember what line of thought of denominational views or doctrinal positions they took. Uh, but I do know believe they believed in the Trinity. And so like I would always question it. I was like, well, if Jesus is God, then why? When he got baptized, like why he tells John, um, no, you must baptize me because I must fulfill all righteousness. And I'm saying, well, he's 30 something years old. You haven't fulfilled all righteousness by now. Like I thought you're God. You know, I would have these questions. So I have I have questioned these ideas and had um, specific things and doubts about certain things uh, because of certain texts uh, that just didn't make sense within the framework of Christianity. Um, And so I I really haven't thought about that from the perspective I have now, which is pro-Judaism. Because I do take the position that the historical Jesus of Nazareth was a man. Um, I don't take any type of divinity view with the man Jesus. Um, I believe he was anointed by God. Uh, But I guess that's kind of when I see his adopt like the the uh, that whole thing where he's being mikvahed by John. um, As kind of this anointing, the Holy Spirit, this anointing coming upon him uh, the anointing of Moshiach um, to come upon him at that moment. I guess to start, start his works towards um, what he was called to do. So um yeah that is an interesting position the correlation between the sect of Qumran and uh I've heard that position as well some people would try to make the argument that uh the, Jesus is uh, an Essene i've heard another position where they tried to make the point that he was sicari he was a zealot um I just don't find any consistency as far as those lines of thought is when you go along through the whole gospel narratives of the testimonies that we have that are codified for us.
0: I have an interesting um, note in um, you mentioned Jesus being 30 years old and uh, Sean makes a a case that all the stuff that you hear about his uh, birth is legendary. And even the the miracles are legendary because they have all these elements on them that there are kind of, hard to to place in reality and not to offend Christians, but that's the way they wrote back then. So he quotes uh, Genesis Apocryphon, and we'll find out what what was the date of that. And he says that there's a, uh, it was a book that was found in the Sea Scrolls. And in there, it says that Noah had a miraculous birth. So this is what it says in page 49 of the notes of uh, the Passover plot. Um and the text begins with the suspicion of his father Lamech that his wife had been made pregnant by an angel and therefore had been unfaithful to him. She, repudi- she repudiates this. Uh, um, and then it says that that when Abraham was told that, that when he was born, a star appeared in the east and moved across the heavens. The wise man went to, from King Nimrod and informed him that this meant that the birth of a child destined to be great. Terah sees the king and he sent for his counselors who advised him to kill the son of Terah. The king sends soldiers to slay the child, but God protected him by dispatching the angel Gabriel to conceal him by clouds and mist. Afterwards, Terah, fearing the boy's life, frets equally from the country. This is from the book of Yashar and the Masé of Abraham. So there's already two stories that correlate to the nativity stories. And one is from Noah and one is from Abraham. There's a third one about Moses. Um, Concerning the birth of Moses, the legend tells that Pharaoh decreed the death of the Israelite male children because of a dream, which the magicians interpreted to mean that by an Israelite child, Egypt would be destroyed. Ambram, whose wife was pregnant, was alarmed by the decree. But God spoke to him in a dream and told him that the child to be born to him would be the one whom the Egyptians dreaded. He would, however, be concealed from those who would destroy him, that's Moses, and become the deliverer of the Hebrews. That's from the Targum of Palestine and Josephus Antiquities uh, 2. So as we can see, whatever uh, the writers of Matthew and Luke were trying to convey, it already had some similitude and some ideas that were brooding in that time about other great heroes of the Jewish faith. So when someone reads the story, and this is what the, the myth vision guy and, and the scholar were trying to do, it's like, that's ridiculous. There's no way that could have happened. Well, then you're going to say everything is ridiculous. Because back then, history was in flux, and history was was mythical and legendary, and it was all made to convey a, a message. And the message was that these people were great. So maybe they went back in time, and they made uh, stories about how their birth was miraculous, but... That's not the crux of the story. The crux of the story is that there was a guy who had a powerful message. He was a disciple of of John, and he there was there's a guy from the um, the Great Courses that he tries to compare Jesus to the Essenes, and he and he says he falls short because in some issues the Essenes were more strict, and in some of them uh, they were more lax, and the same with Jesus. The same goes when you try to call him a salad. We try to call him a uh, Pharisee. We try to call him a uh, Sicari. Whatever group that, that they try to pin Jesus into, he doesn't fit perfectly. So then we have to create kind of like what another scholar that we had did is like their own version of Judaism. So this lady called it Paulinian Pharisaicism, or you know Jesus Judaism, or Judaic, um, you know Nazareanism. And that's a, interesting that Schoenfield also says the term Nazarene does, has nothing to do with Nazareth. It has to do with them being the keepers or the preservers of the tradition. Because the word uh, that that is used in the Hebrew for that means that. So we have to keep in mind that there was a lot of play on, off on words. And uh, one thing that the the counter missionaries will always bring up is that this idea of Jesus being a Nazarite or a Nazarean uh, contradicts itself because they, Matthew tries to quote the passage of Samson that he would be a Nazarite all his life and try to apply it to Jesus. But again, they're doing play on words and most likely it was in Hebrew. So to say that the, the passage doesn't fit perfectly, it was never meant to fit perfectly. It was meant to allude that he was a great man like, like Samson. Um, and then you know, there's always stuff where they say, um, Schoenfeld goes as far as saying that a lot of the ideas of Paul were Gnostic. I wouldn't go as far as calling them Gnostic, but I would call them pre, um, like, like platonic or pre Kabbalah. Like there were a lot of weird stuff about belief and knowledge that, um, that seem a little foreign or Hellenistic, but it's interesting that he, he portrays Paul as the hero and Peter as the Hellenist, um, guy who's bringing outside ideas I, I have to find that in the book but um that's something that i read in a review and then he says that paul wrote the book of revelation which i found very intriguing because if paul wrote the book of revelation as like um, a front against rome then it changes the context of everything um can you work with me tony like let's look at the book of revelation and let's say that maybe paul wrote it but it happened to john and we don't know which john it was So he's saying that the followers of Jesus should be completely faithful to the Torah, do not eat food that sacrificed to idols, do not partake of um, sexual immorality, do not live a life that is duplicitous, and to be in constant conflict and sacrificial uh, devotion to their leader. How would that change the context of the New Testament if it was Paul, the one that wrote it, and not some other random disciple?
1: Wow. <clears throat> um, I think the language is off uh, the way everything is written within the book of Revelation. Um, there's a different element within Revelation that Paul, I don't see Paul using in any of the, his other epistles. Hypothetically speaking, if he did write it. Um, yeah, that is uh